0: Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, what's the Buddha say about food and eating? He says we ought to abstain from killing and violence, and we ought not to eat with feelings of desire or attachment.
1: How can we do that if our bodies feel a physical desire for food? Even against our will and concentration,
0: we must eat. In those cases, we must bear the feeling with wisdom and mindfulness, and we must eat to nourish ourselves and support our practice.
1: What are the rules about what we can and cannot eat?
0: Those are up to interpretation. The only principle we must adhere to is that we must not exact violence upon any sentient being, whether it is out of anger or passion, but especially out of hunger or desire.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing food. How does Buddhist doctrine view food? Is veganism or vegetarianism required? What is the typical Buddhist diet? We hope you enjoy. So, how does Buddhist doctrine
0: view food? We should start the answer to this question by discussing what is really at stake with the issue of food in the Buddhist scheme. As we've talked about before, Buddhism rejects the concept of a capital S self from the very outset. This self would be equivalent to body plus mind. It would be permanent and it would be ours, meaning that we would possess it. We don't have this self, but we do have some of the parts of it we do have a body and we have a mind. These aspects of ourselves are universally reliant on food for nourishment and for continued and sustained existence. We can't avoid the fact that we have to eat to not only stay alive, but also to focus and learn and practice and think. The fact that we can so easily mistake the body for a self, and the fact that food is so important to the continued existence of the body, means that food represents one of the easiest things for us to become desirously attached to, and one of the cornerstones of the delusion of existence of a capital S self. This is because food offers us a variety of sensory experiences which we can become desirous of and attached to, and our bodies are biologically wired to seek out food and the nourishment it provides us. This is especially true of certain types of foods. For example, we will talk about the five forbidden smelly foods in a moment. Either way, that lizard-brain desire for food and nourishment can very easily turn into a frontal lobe desire and even at an addiction, making food an important cornerstone of a Buddhist lifestyle. Food is also an important point of doctrinal application. The very first precept of Buddhism is non-violence, or ahimsa, and while this obviously refers to abstention from killing people, it also applies to abstention from killing or exacting harm of any kind onto other sentient beings, or beings in the six or ten realms. The only other sentient beings besides other human beings that people kill? Are livestock, or other animals, for a variety of reasons. Therefore, the doctrine of ahimsa is readily applicable to one's diet. One final point that makes this other point important to discuss is the fact that all traditions emphasize dana, or almsgiving, as a practice for the laity. That is to say that the laity should make offerings to and support the monastic community. Because the monastic community is prohibited from owning things, handling money, and so on, These donations most often take the form of food offerings. They have lodging at the monastery, they have a robe and a bowl, and so all that is left is food and water. What is donated can be very important here. Is it proper form to offer meat or animal products to a monastic? The answer is not so simple. Thus, the precept of ahimsa, the act of almsgiving, and the doctrine of desire and the self have several interpretations with regards to food, which we can discuss here. To begin with, in Buddhism, food ought to be eaten to nourish the body and to maintain health, and should not ever be eaten with attachment or desire. That's true for all schools and branches of Buddhism, because it is true for anything that can potentially trigger desire and attachment. Now moving towards the interpretations of Ahimsa. In early Buddhism and Theravada traditions, the precept of Ahimsa was taken to mean that one must abstain from killing or harming any sentient being, and also abstaining from consuming killed or harmed sentient beings. Thus, one's diet, be they monastic or not, must be vegetarian at the very least. They cannot consume eggs or fish, but they can consume cheese and other dairy products. As we've discussed before, the Mahayana system questions the viability and the usefulness of the hard-line moral system of the Theravada, and thus allows consumption of animal products among the laity at the very least, with the knowledge that this is still more morally dubious than eating vegetarian. That is to say that Mahayana practitioners, both lay and monastic, all over the world, eat meat and animal products, but there are also many monastic institutions that eat vegetarian only. For example, temples in the Mahayana commonly only accept vegetarian alms donations and also typically only serve vegetarian meals to the community. One notable exception is the Dalai Lama, the head priest figure of the Vajrayana tradition of Buddhism he eats meat because he won't refuse any alms foods given to him for any reason he does not engage in the killing he does not buy the food himself and he does not request or advocate for animal products over vegetable products so he will eat meat only if it is given to him many mahayana buddhists both lay and monastic adhere to this principle as they emphasize the spirit of dana or alms giving and they really can't be picky That being said, there is a list of five foods that are completely forbidden to monastics, no matter what. These are the five smelly foods that I mentioned earlier. These are onions, garlic, green onions, chives, and leeks. The argument is based partially in Vedic medicine, which argues that when eaten raw, these roots can cause irritability or lack of concentration, and when eaten cooked, they can produce hormones and affect the liver and so on and so forth. But I personally have a much more simple and perhaps cynical interpretation of this doctrine. My interpretation is that when somebody eats this food, they smell bad, and they can be distracting in a monastic setting where focus and meditation is necessary.
1: So, I want to go back to the idea of Ahimsa for a moment. So, I understand the desire to not harm other sentient beings, but from looking at this, a strict reading makes vegetarian food also not possible. farmer is going to have to kill pests that threaten their crop, you know, insects that might eat leaves, rodents that might eat the food before it's harvested. There's probably going to be sentient beings harmed in the process of clearing a field out to be used to grow food. Like, you can't really produce food in a way that isn't violent to some sentient being. The logistics of producing food without causing any harm anywhere is just beyond us in just a practical manner. So what
0: is the response to that kind of point? It's a good question to bring up because you're exactly right. Not only are the bugs and the worms and the dirt harmed, but also... Like you say, like rabbits and animals, which might want to eat the vegetables, they are usually pushed off of the farm in some way, if not completely killed, right? And so there is a lot of death that goes into the production of food. And for that reason, monastics are actually not allowed to store food, to cultivate food, to store seeds, or to possess seeds in any way. So that means that they can't actually do their own food production. All of their food has to be donated from the community. And the laity, then, they have to be the ones that engage in the killing. And so, because these rules apply to the monks and the monastics, they're not the ones that are necessarily doing all of this violence that is necessary for farming. And they're kind of absolved of the bad karma that would come from doing that because they're only consuming these foods as alms. And almsgiving, even if you have done ahimsa to create the food that you're giving as alms, almsgiving is a highly meritorious act for both the giver and the receiver. And so, a lot of that kind of overshadows the practical, the logistical, the pragmatic concerns of food production. Okay, that makes sense.
1: So, basically, yes, there is some bad karma that is inevitably going to come with food production. But the religion also provides a compensation
0: for that bad karma in the practice of almsgiving. That's right. And this kind of thing, it applies differently to Theravada and Mahayana. One of the Mahayana critiques of the Theravada system is sort of precisely striking at the heart of this. You can't really, according to the Theravada system... Pursue enlightenment for yourself, but also be a person and also be kind of supported to the community by the community, right? You have to remove yourself from the world. And Mahayana doesn't really think that that's necessary in a lot of cases. They regard ahimsa and they regard these karmic concerns as being ideals to strive for, but also as messages to the practitioner that, you know, you're never going to be a morally perfect. Being. And so you have to make up for that somehow, or you have to find some way around that. Right? Pure Land, the way around that is faith that no matter how bad you are, Amida will do something for you good and you'll be saved. And for Zen, no matter how bad you are, meditation is likely going to help. It's not going to perfectly fix you up, but it's going to help. Right? So a lot of rituals and a lot of practices in Mahayana Buddhism. They arise out of this very problem of being a person in the world, being what they call a householder, someone who lives with relationships and jobs and responsibilities and desires and attachments, and also being someone who is eligible, so to speak, for enlightenment.
1: All right. So let's get back to the script. Is veganism or vegetarianism required?
0: The short answer is that it depends on if you are a layperson or a monk, and also it depends on what type of Buddhism that you're looking at. The long answer is that for Theravada and for some Mahayana monastics, vegetarianism is absolutely required, and veganism is not necessarily required. They can still consume dairy products, like we've said. For some Mahayana and Vajrayana monks, vegetarianism is not expressly required. For all laity, vegetarianism is encouraged but eating animal products that you yourself have not killed or harmed is still better morally than killing or harming the animal yourself. These differences in the Mahayana and Theravada traditions stem partially from this issue of morality that we have revisited over and over again, but it also stems from a translation issue. Let's go back to the Nibbana Sutta, which we read and discussed, and actually just concluded our reading and discussion of very recently. If you remember, the Buddha's last meal, which was given to him as alms by the blacksmith Chunda, was called Sukhara Madaba. The Buddha had known that the time of his passing was coming soon, and when he ate this dish, it made him very ill, and he knew that it would be the meal that actually killed him. He told Ananda not to let anybody else eat it and to bury it somewhere far away, because he knew that it would make the others ill. He then had to console Chunda, who was understandably freaking out, thinking that he had killed the Buddha with his bad food, and tell him, that giving a Buddha his last meal is a very meritorious act. Anyways, to this day, the name Sukaramadava has not been historically reconstructed completely. We know that this meal was one of two possible items. It was either a pork dish with pork meat in it, or it was a dish of mushrooms and tubers. The reason why we think that is because Sukaramadava kind of means pig's delight, or delight of pig, or something like that. And so that implies to us that either it was a tasty dish made out of pork, or it was referring to what pigs like to go and find, which is truffles, mushrooms, and tubers, and so on. The interpretation of what this meal actually was depends on which school or tradition of Buddhism that you ask. The Theravada traditions support that it was a vegetarian dish, emphasizing the doctrine of ahimsa in the preparation and consumption of the meal. Whereas the Mahayana traditions emphasize that it was a pork dish, emphasizing the importance of the act of giving, which was performed by Chunda the blacksmith. That being the case, the discussion of what to offer a monastic when doing almsgiving is a non-trivial one. To begin with, no matter what, all Buddhist monastics will accept vegetarian offerings. However, some, like I've said, will also accept offerings of meat. That's because they believe that to refuse an offering is selfish and picky and occludes the merit acquired through the act of almsgiving. There are certain economic, cultural and environmental concerns in South Asia and East Asia and Southeast Asia, which make it so that prohibiting or refusing certain types of food would make it such that certain people would be unable to actually do the act of almsgiving. This would be problematic, as the laity could not accrue merit and support the monastic community in one of the only ways that's available for them to do so. Speaking specifically, in India, historically, because of the prevalence of Brahmanism and Hinduism, meat was and has been largely unavailable. This is due to the significance of the zebu, or the sacred cow, in Hinduism. Meat has historically been hard to get in India due to price and the inability to get clean and accessible meat, whereas in East Asia, meat was more widely available culturally and economically, so it was more frequently given alongside fruits and vegetables and grains. These sorts of things determine the localization of offerings and traditions of food in Buddhism in Asia. What is the typical Buddhist diet? In reality, there are probably as many Buddhist diets as there are Buddhists, but broadly speaking, we can talk about different monastic diets. One thing that determines these different Buddhist meals is of course the environment, like we said. What is available to eat and is commonly eaten in India may not be available or common in Japan. Another thing is of course the local religious and cultural landscape. We talked about the issue of cattle in India. As an alternative to beef, There is the presence of pork, chicken, and goat meat in Indian cuisine. However, when Buddhism travels to Japan, where livestock animals are strictly less available, you see less consumption of those things, especially in southern and central parts of Japan. This is then replaced with fish and with alternatives for protein. This is true of grains as well. Large-scale rice cultivation goes all the way back to the earliest stages of human agriculture in East Asia, But those grains are not the only ones that are present in East Asian cuisine, and they have not always even been the primary grains that you find in cuisine. In China, instead of rice, historically you can find millet, sorghum, and wheat cultivation. These have been very important in different regions in different periods of time. Thus, the offerings that they've made to monastics and to Buddhas had those grains in addition to or even instead of rice in some cases. That being the case, while the Buddhist diet skews toward vegetarianism, It is not always vegetarian, and saying anything beyond that about the Buddhist diet is nearly impossible to describe because it becomes so very diverse and varied across times and places. The five acrid foods we discussed before are five of the tastiest and five of the most frequently used seasonings and ingredients in Asian cuisine, so it's safe to say that most laity do not ever abstain from eating them. Thus, trying to come down to a typical Buddhist diet is nearly impossible.
1: We hope you enjoyed our discussion of food and Buddhism. Join us next week where we will be discussing tantras. What are the tantras? What do they contain? How do they relate to other Asian religious traditions? We hope to see you there. Thank you very much for listening.
0: See you next time. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer.
1: And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit.
0: And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.